0: I invite you to open up to our scripture passage today. We're looking at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Colossians 1, uh, 24 to 29. So starting in verse 24 of Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ's. In you, the hope of glory, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord. We pray that you would take these words written so long ago, and yet they are not dead words, but it is a living word, and we pray that as we proclaim Christ here in this worship service, that the word of Christ would enter deep into our hearts and make us more and more like Christ. Would your word do a work of recreation, new creation in our lives in this moment? So that we would become more and more the people that you are calling us to be. Father, we need you to work. We need your Holy Spirit to be active here. We pray that he would be in the hearts of everyone, ministering to each person here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Maybe you've heard the phrase that uh, communications is a lifeline. Communications is a lifeline. And nowhere is this more true uh, than in war. Uh, When I was deployed in Iraq, I learned that communications often meant the difference between life and death, particularly in these urban environments where there would be small groups of Marines patrolling throughout the city. And if there was a group of enemy who knew the territory and terrain much better than us, and so they could hide much better than we could, if there was a group of them waiting in ambush for an incoming patrol, they could very easily do some damage. And that's why... Our radios mattered because with a quick call on the radio, a QRF, quick reaction force, could be dispatched and make it to that patrol within a few minutes, easily tripling their firepower and really shifting the weight of that conflict. And if that wasn't enough, those radios could be used to call in mortar fire or artillery fire or even a bomb if airplanes were on station. Those radios were crucial for passing up a nine-line medevac, if someone was injured, scrambling helicopters who could be into that position within a few minutes. If someone had a traumatic injury, we would often talk about what was called the golden hour, that if they could get to a field hospital within an hour of sustaining that injury, it was much more likely that they would live. And one of my jobs was to be in charge of the communications platoon. I had about 76 guys who were spread out all over our battle space and were the backbone of those vital communications. And I had to ensure that uh, whether when things got stressful uh, because they were experiencing small arms fire or maybe they just witnessed one of their friends uh, receive a traumatic injury, that they still knew how to operate the radios and provide clear and accurate and concise reports to get the help that was needed so that those guys could live communication was our lifeline and i know what comfort i took that when i would go out on one of those patrols that knowing that there were people out there that wanted to kill us a working radio was a great source of comfort because that was our lifeline if things got bad that's how we got support that's how we got medevac that's how we got reinforcements now you might not have noticed it at first but this passage is giving us a very similar idea that christ is your lifeline. That if you are connected to him, no matter what happens in your life, you don't need to fear. No matter what happens in your life, you will have the support and reinforcements and supplies that you need to make it through. No matter what happens, you can even discover how to rejoice in suffering and you will be nourished for everything that you need for maturity. Christ is your lifeline. That's what I want you to remember this morning. Christ is your lifeline, and we're going to look at it in three ways. Your lifeline in suffering, he's actually in you, second, and then third, he's your lifeline unto maturity. So first, in suffering. The first verse of our passage has probably been tripping people up ever since it was first written. Not that Paul rejoices in his suffering, that's something he says a lot, but then he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to to Christ's afflictions. Now when you read that, it almost sounds like, wait, is Paul saying that Christ didn't finish the job? That Jesus kind of clocked out early from his ministry and there's still 10% of the work done and now Christ is needing or Paul is needing to finish all that up? You know, one of the most important things to do when we understand scripture is to not examine a particular verse or even a particular word in isolation but to examine it within the context, the sentence and paragraph, and even the rest of scripture that you find it in. Now, you do this naturally in communication, right? But for some reason, when it comes to studying the Bible, we tend to forget these very basic principles of interpretation. So for instance, if I were to ask you, hey, where did you park the car? Now, to understand what I said, you wouldn't Take the word park and say, well, let me look at all the definitions of what park can mean. And you open up a dictionary and say, well, a park could be a public outdoor space that usually has benches and playgrounds and other things like that. A park can be an area designated to a specific industry or trade, like a technology park. And then third, park, could mean to bring your vehicle to a stop and leave it temporarily. And then you look at all those definitions as you're analyzing my word and say, which one do I like best for what John means? No. Now, you do this automatically in your head, right? The context, where, and car, let you know that it's talking about the third definition of that word, right? Where did you leave the car temporarily? And that same principle is true when we interpret Scripture, really when we interpret any passage, whether it's Scripture or not. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at the preceding verses here where Paul says you all were alienated from God, but then in verse 22, but he has now reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So that sentence has to inform how we understand what Paul is saying here in verse 24. Does it sound Like Paul is saying, Christ clocked out early from his job. No, not at all, right? So Paul must have had something else in mind. And I think we get a clue at what he means when you notice that little word change that Paul uses when he talks about filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, Christ doesn't say he is filling up in his flesh what is lacking for the sake of Christ's flesh but for the sake of his body. There's this flesh-body contrast. And then he also doesn't say Christ's physical body, like he did back in verse 22, but he simply says Christ's body, and then says, which is his church. And if you're familiar with Paul's biography, you'll know that before he became a Christian, he had a full-time job at persecuting Christians. And he recounts his conversion in Acts 26, where he says... I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was so obsessed with persecuting Christians that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And Paul is on one of those journeys to Damascus where he is going to go and imprison the Christians there, and then Jesus, who had already ascended up into heaven, shows up right before Paul on the road and asks him this question, Paul, or Saul, which was his name back then, why Do you persecute me? Now, notice what Christ says there. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus was up in heaven at that point. He was not down on earth. So how is Paul persecuting Jesus? Well, it shows this really key principle that Jesus is so connected to his church, his people, that when individuals in his church are suffering, it is as if Christ himself Is suffering, and I think that lesson stuck with Paul. It changed the entire course of his life, and is even influencing what he is saying here. If you have children, you know you've had experiences where, when your child is suffering, it feel you feel their pain, right? You feel the pain for them in some ways. You you say even this is harder for me than it is for you, which no child understands at the moment. And Paul. I think, is showing us that with Jesus, that link is even stronger. So much so that Christ is so connected to his people that Christ can rightfully call his people part of his own body. It's like when you slam your finger in the door, this tiny little piece of your body, and yet you slam it in the door and your whole body reacts in pain. This is how it works with Christ and the church. When a Christian suffers persecution, Christ experiences that suffering as if it were like that finger of his body being slammed in the door and he feels it in himself. and though Christ has finished suffering in his physical body, his spiritual body, the church, all of us Christians, are still carrying a cross of suffering, and we are waiting for our resurrection. And why is this? Well, because when you become a Christian, you become united to Christ so that the path of your life will follow the path of Christ's life, which means a life of suffering to the cross and then resurrection. We will face the cross before we face resurrection in our life, which means every one of you will face suffering in this life. There's no way around that if you're a Christian. Every one of us will have a cross to bear. For some of us, it's lighter. For some of you, it is a crushing weight that you wonder how you will get through it. But there is no surer place to be because that path that you are on is the very path that Jesus was on. And he is connected to you on it. That you cannot get lost. You cannot go astray when you're on that path no matter how hard it is because it is as as if Christ is walking with you in that suffering. And to flee from that path, to go to a life that is easier, actually takes you into a more dangerous place because you're away from where Christ is and his church. That when you suffer, it is pressing you into the very core of Jesus' life, which was the cross. And because we are connected to Jesus, he feels our pain, but it also means that we are connected to one another. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, to 5-7, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, he's talking about as a Christian that suffering that you endure, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Because Christ knows what it's like to suffer. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And this means that as Christians, we should be excel at caring for one another in suffering. Because we know what it is like, and we follow a a crucified Lord who suffered. He was an expert in it. Many war veterans don't find it easy to talk about their experiences overseas with people because something about it, it feels sacred, it is intimate, others don't understand it. And this is probably true for anyone that has suffered deeply. It is hard for them to talk about it. But when you meet another veteran who served in war, you feel this connection, right? Because even if the details were different, they get the pain. They know what it was like. You have shared in each other's suffering, and there is a bond that grows here. And Paul is saying that should be how it is for the church. Christians should be their own support group, because we are experts on what it is like to suffer in a sinful world. We should expect suffering. Right? We should know that when someone, their life is falling apart and they're crushed by the weight of whatever that suffering is, we should have the confidence to be able to go into that space and sit there, knowing that this is what the world is. Not having to try to minimize it, not trying to have to fix it all, because we know we cannot fix it all until Christ comes again. But we can have the resources to help each other endure through that suffering, and rest more strongly on the power of Christ. And and then this also means that we don't worship a God who kind of watches your life like we watch X-Men movies, right? When some just ridiculous thing is happening to Wolverine or whatever, right? It's like, man, that looks like that really hurts. I'm glad that's not me. No, Jesus doesn't look at your life and say, that looks like it hurts. I'm glad it's not me. But he looks at the suffering in your life, and he feels the scars on his hands, and he says, I know exactly what that's like. I've been there already. And it's even more. Before you cry out in your suffering, he has felt your present suffering as if it was happening to him. He doesn't need you to tell him about how much it hurts. He knows how much it hurts, even before you say it. You have a lifeline to Jesus in your pain and in your suffering. And that means if you're a Christian, you will never ever face a situation where you are suffering alone. You are never alone in your depression. You are never alone in your pain. Even if you look around and you can say like the psalmist in Psalm 88, darkness is my only friend. But even in the darkness, Christ is there. And because of that fundamental reality of the church, we should be a place of rest and safety for those who are suffering around us and desperate for some sort of hope and hope. We should be a group of people who are acutely aware of how much this world hurts, how much brokenness there is, And that we come together and we don't just shove all of our tears into the back room so that people don't see it and act like everything is going great in our life. But we come together as fellow sufferers in need of a Jesus who says to every one of us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The church should be the place that is most realistic about the world and how hard it is. And yet at the same time, we know that Christ has conquered it and he is coming back soon. We don't need to fear suffering because Christ is in us. This brings us to our second point. Christ is in you. In verse 25, Paul gives us his life mission. And he he says that he's been appointed by God to bring the full word of God, something that was hidden for ages to light. Don't miss the significance of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, guess what, guys, the entire Old Testament, that big chunk of our Bibles today, do you know what the entire point of it was? Do you know what its essential message is? It can be boiled down to four words, second half of verse 27. Christ is in you. That's the whole story of the Bible. What is the Bible about? It's the story of how God is going to make it work so that he can live in you. Now, when Paul writes about that mystery that has been kept hidden, he doesn't mean it's kind of like God is like a a magician who pulls a rabbit out of the hat and said, surprise, actually, I was talking about Jesus the entire time. No. Instead, when he talks about mystery, think of it like reading a mystery novel, where there's all these clues interspersed throughout each chapter. They point you to the right answer, but often you don't notice them until you get to the end, and you go back and you see how all that stuff was there the entire time. And Paul is telling us that there are all these clues, all these things throughout the Old Testament that are pointing you to God's big plan. That Jesus living in you is the culmination of the entire Bible. That everything that God was doing from Genesis 1 up until now was making a way for God to live with his people. And remember when Paul writes, Christ is in you. He's writing to the Colossian church, which was primarily Gentile. If you remember the Jews were God's people in the Old Testament, Gentiles are basically everybody else. In the Old Testament, you read it and it can feel like so much of it is focused on how is God going to be with the Jews? And if you were a Gentile, you would never be able to experience God and have the intimacy of being with him in his temple like you could if you were a Jew. And it would feel like you were kind of always a lesser citizen. And Paul says, but guess what? That was just an intermediate step to the goal, which is Christ living in people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And remember that this letter was written, if you go back to the first sermon in the series, that Paul was concerned because this Colossian church with a bunch of new believers, they'd become Christians, but as people traveled through, they came and told the Colossians, hey, yeah, you guys are Christians, but if you want to take your Christian life to the next level, you've got to add some more stuff to it, things that look a lot like Jewish laws and customs. And Paul is warning them. He's saying, guess what, guys? Adding these extra laws into your life and doing these extra things, it doesn't make you a super Christian. It actually takes away what makes you a Christian. It's it's just that stuff is a stuff backwards. That stuff just pointed to Christ in you, and you have that. There is nothing more than having Christ in you. And if you were a Jew and you heard that, though, it would kind of feel like the Gentiles were cheating. (laughs) Like, that's not fair. Put yourself in the mind of a Jew. It would almost be something like if, if you worked really hard to get some certification for your job or your trade or career, and then you study for the test, you do all these things, and you pass it, and then two months later, they take the hardest parts of the test out of the exam, and suddenly, all these people that studied a quarter as much as you are, are passing the test, right? What would your reaction be? Well, that's, that isn't fair, right? They're doing just a tiny bit of work. I want to be rewarded for everything that I've done. It attacks your pride. And so you find a way to kind of, you know, make yourself up one more notch. Well, you'd say, well, I took the test when it was really hard, right? I, I took it back when a lot of people failed. We, pride is what so often keeps us from embracing the grace of the gospel, And then when you combine that with a human heart, that all our hearts are hardwired to want to contribute something to our salvation, right? We want to have some reason to kind of, you know, have us move up a few notches above others. It becomes a dangerous mix that we'll see here in the book of Colossians. It's one that starts to create kind of levels of Christians, right? There's, well, the super Christians, and there's these Christians, there's average Christians. And Paul says here, that when you add anything to that simple gospel message, you're taking yourself away from the heart of Christianity. And, but we, we are so tempted by those things, because we like a Jesus who kind of complements our efforts, right, and, and gets us further, but we can still put the cherry on top and brag about that. We don't like a Jesus who obliterates our efforts and says all your efforts are actually taking you down the wrong path. You need all of me, because we want to contribute something to why we're saved. But Paul shows you can't contribute anything. All you can bring to the table with Jesus is a pile of your own sin. And Jesus has done all the work. And through his completion of that work, you have in you what is the culmination of God's plan from the beginning of time. Christ lives in you. We called the radio a lifeline because it connected us back to the the main bases. Everything that we needed to survive was there. Reinforcements, medevacs, resupplies, food, water. And the radio is what we use to bring those things to us. Christ is a lifeline in you who connects you to all the resources that you need to grow into the fullness of God. Christ in you is the most important goal for your life. Because if you're connected to him, you're connected to life itself. This is what Jesus meant in John seven thirty seven: Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If you have rivers of living water flowing from within you, you can handle a lot. If the rivers of water that you're depending on are all these external things, right, how well you perform in something, how well your relationships are going, how much money you've made or or you have in your savings, those are all rivers of water that can dry up so fast. It means, though, that if Christ is a living well of water from within you, that when there is drought, you have water that isn't dependent on the supply of uh, on the, the rain falling that week. You're not dependent on your neighbor upstream who builds a dam and siphons off some of the water for his irrigation channels and leaves you just a trickle. To be connected to Christ is in some way to be off the grid. That you don't need all of those things that everyone else thinks they need in order to have life because you have the source of life in you. So that power outages. Natural disasters, water shortages, they don't affect you like they affect everybody else because you are tapped into a source of life that is not dependent on this world. And again, Jesus is the model of that. There's one story in John where after having traveled for all day, his disciples come to Jesus and they think that he must want something to eat. He's probably hungry. And Jesus says, I have a kind of food that you know nothing about. And to be a Christian means that you have that Jesus living in your heart, nourishing your life. So are you living that way? Are you living like you have the source of life fueling your life? Are you living like you are tapped into wells of grace that do not you know, change depending on the weather? It often can feel, though, like you're isolated, and you're alone. You're undersupplied. But we must not forget that if you're a Christian, you are connected to the one who has all things, and that will give you the resources to face any situation. And that brings us into our third point. We're united to maturity. If Christ in you is the culmination of Scripture's message, Paul has then dedicated himself to that work. He says, there is nothing more important that I can give my life to. And so the central content of all of his teaching is Jesus. But notice, this isn't just to bring people to Christ. He doesn't say, I'm preaching Christ so that people become Christians and then I give them this other stuff. But it also, he says, Christ is what brings people to maturity. And what is that mature Christian? Well, it's you looking like Jesus. You having his character and his image is what's reflected in your life. Paul gives us a picture of that in chapter 3, where he says, So put to death the sinful earthly things that are living within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Do not be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. That's the image of Christ in us. And how do you grow into that? How do you get that? Paul says, it's Jesus. He is enough. He is the source of everything you need so that your life can look like that. Why? Because Jesus is that lifeline to all the resources and power that you need to be mature in your Christian life. He has all of the tools needed to grow you into someone who looks like him. And because he lives in you, those resources are so much closer than you realize. See, becoming a Christian, it's not just like a decision that you make and then go on with the rest of your life. It's not like realizing, oh yeah, thank you Jesus for forgiving me, and then you go on with your own agenda. To become a Christian is a radical reorientation of your entire life. No matter who you are, it means that your desires must change. It means that what you long for in life must change. It means what you live for must change. It is a rebirth of a death to your old self and those desires and a rebirth into wanting to live in harmony with God. It is, to become a Christian, is the one who, as we learned earlier in Colossians, existed before anything else and holds all creation together, takes residence inside you. Think about that for a second. How can the one who existed before anything else, and holds everything together, come and live in you? That cannot happen without it radically changing who you are. That cannot happen without it affecting every little detail in your life. And so is it? Is it? Are you living like every aspect of your life has been revolutionized by Christ? Or are you trying to straddle something of having Jesus on one side and your own life on the other? You cannot live that way. This is one of the biggest struggles in, in my life, probably for you as well. I know these things up here, and yet it feels like there's this huge gap between them reaching down here in my heart and actually living that way. I don't live as if the one who existed before anything else and and holds all creation together has made my heart his home address. I still live so much like I'm the center of the universe. I live for what I want. I live for what feels good in the moment. And I long for that reality of Christ's presence, which is in me and in you if you're a Christian, to break into the reality of your day-to-day. So that how you react in the moment, how you react in a stressful situation at work, how you react at home, smells more of Jesus than of, than of my selfish self. And we're not there. But do you long to be there? And I don't long for it enough. I'm far too easily satisfied with lesser things. And so what do we do? Well, I want you to notice here in these last verses that Paul's prescription for mature Christianity is this, it's universally given. Verse 28, it, it comes across more clearly in the English Standard Version. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we might present everyone mature in Christ. This is God's growth plan for everyone, no matter who you are. And it's centered around proclaiming Christ. And if you look at Paul's ministry, you see that a lot of it is this proclamation of sermons. It's speaking to smaller groups. It's investing in a smaller group of leaders. And he's continually reminding people these truths about Christ, ones that we've looked at in these series. And he believes that when people hear about Christ and how he's living in them and what that means, that will lead people to maturity. How? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like that, right? Like, you're lucky if you remember any of the sermon by Monday. (laughs) Unless you're Sarah. She takes good notes. (laughs) Because we, but here's why that matters. Here's why hearing about Christ, hearing the gospel, hearing the words of God matters. Just look through the Bible. How does God's word work? God's word doesn't work by God speaking, and then the things working up enough power to go and do those things. No, God's word works because his word is powerful in and of itself. One of the most clear places is at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. God speaks, and then the world is created. God speaks, creation obeys. God speaks, creation obeys. And guess what happens in your life when you hear the word of God? Through preaching in small groups through your own reading. It is God speaking that creative word to you so that your heart, your life, your mind is being recreated to look more like Jesus. It's not because of your own effort. It's because of Christ working inside you. And that's what Paul gets at in that last verse, right? And he says, I realize that there is this power of Christ within me, and I'm going to ride that wave to maturity. You know, you've forgotten most all of the meals that you've, you ate as a kid. Maybe you can remember five of them. And yet, weren't those meals crucial for you growing into maturity? And it's the same way with God. Showing up day after day, giving yourself to his word, hearing your word, feasting on his word, grows you into maturity so that after a lifetime of doing that, you will be far more Christ-like than you would have imagined. And so are you feeding on his word? You regularly come to worship him and hear his word preached? Are you meditating on his word throughout the week? Are you discussing his word with others? Are you reading his word in your own time? The radio was our lifeline. It connected us to all the resources that we needed for life. And Christ is your lifeline for everything that you need. And he is so much closer and so much more ready to help than you realize. He lives in you when you look to him in faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to live in the reality of that because our day-to-day life, Lord, you look at my life, you look probably any one of our lives, and it sure doesn't look like Christ is living in us so much of the time. Because we're just as selfish, we're just as grumpy, we're just as wrapped up in ourselves as anybody else. So Lord, help us to give ourselves to you more. Help us to put ourselves in those places where we will hear your word, where we will eat your word, where we will feed on Christ in us. And just as a good meal nourishes our body, Lord, we trust that these good meals will nourish our souls so that over time, you will do in something Do in us something beyond what we'd asked or imagined. Please do this, Father, we pray. And it's in his name we ask, and it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.